Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you here this morning as we will continue our message series on thinking biblically. This morning, we are thinking biblically about this. We are thinking biblically about science and the Bible. Our brother Paul Johnson has been teaching us on this series on thinking biblically about who we are in Christ. And next Sunday, God willing, he'll be resuming that series on our identity in Christ. But today, we will dedicate our attention to this topic on this series about the science and the Bible. Let us all go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your blessings upon our lives, and we ask, Father, that you would minister to our hearts as we turn our hearts, our attention to your word. We pray that our lives will be changed and that we will be even firmer in our strength, in our faith, in our devotion to you, for your word is truth, for you are our God. We praise you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask you one question. What is science? How would you answer this question? Science as a word can be defined simply as knowledge. But science as a field of studies could be defined as this. Science is a pursuit of knowledge and understanding of the natural world based on observation and experiments. The key word there is observation. Science only accepts what can be observed and verified. And that is crucial that you keep in mind throughout this message this morning. Science only accepts what can be observed and verified. For example, if I plant some apple seeds on the ground and I watch them germinate and grow and eventually I get to eat, eat apples or make some apple pie. That is a scientific process because from the beginning I was able to observe it and verify it. That is science for you. Now the question is, how does science stack up against God in the Bible? Or as science would be able to ask, as scientists probably would say, how does God in the Bible stack up against science? Does science contradict God in the Bible? As we will see this morning, Although the Bible is not a science book, the Bible is scientifically accurate. In fact, we can go as far as to say that science confirms the Bible. It is true that many scientists may say that the Bible is not trustworthy because many of its statements cannot be what? Cannot be observed and verified. They say that we need faith to believe that the Bible is true. However, when scientists make assumptions and presuppositions about things that cannot be observed, like evolution and the Big Bang Theory, it is science that makes assumptions about things that happened in the past that cannot be observed and verified today either. Science does necessitate its followers to have faith in all of their hypotheses. They may say, it is foolish for you to believe that this God created the entire universe. But at the same time, we could also say that what is foolish is to believe that the entire universe was created from nothing billions of years ago. That somehow nothing times nothing equals everything. 
It is undeniable that we need faith to believe in the Bible, but it is also undeniable that they too need faith to believe in science in its entirety. One could ask, what are the specific portions of the Bible that we can say are scientifically proven? In other words, what is the answer to this question? What examples prove the Bible as scientifically accurate? If you, as a believer, as a Christian, were to be asked this question, what would you say? Where would you point in a Bible that proves that the Bible is scientifically accurate and, in fact, that science confirms the Bible? This morning, briefly, I would like to give you five examples from the Bible that prove and confirm that the Bible is scientifically accurate. In first place, about time and the celestial bodies. The Bible tells us in Genesis in chapter 1, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. When the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that according to the word of God, that the lights of the heavens will be used to determine the seasons, the days, and the years. We know, of course, that the lights referred to there in that verse is in reference to the sun and the moon, which along with the earth itself are used to determine the seasons, the days, and the years. Notice this illustration from Cam Ham. We know that the earth takes... 24 hours to complete a rotation around itself. And it is an astronomical fact, it is a scientific fact, that what determines the duration of a day is the duration of time that it takes for the Earth to go around itself. One day is one rotation of the Earth. That is, that is a scientific fact. And not only that, we also know that it takes the moon one month to go around the Earth. That is a scientific fact. It cannot be denied. The earth takes about 30 days to complete its revolution around the earth. And we also know that one year is the amount of time that it takes for the earth to travel once around the sun. These are all scientific facts. Children learned this in elementary school. But the point here is, how could Moses have known this when he wrote the book of Genesis 3,500 years ago that the sun, the moon, and the earth itself would be used to determine the seasons and the days and the years? Even the seasons, because according to the position of the earth going around the sun, we know when a season ends and when another season begins. How could he have known that unless the creator of the universe himself had given him that revelation 3,500 years ago. And not only we know that this is a specific to what scientists accept today as what determines the seasons, the days, the months, the years, but we also know that what God said was specific to this planet, was specific to planet Earth. As the Bible tells us in Genesis in chapter 8, while the Earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God has specified that seed time and harvest and all those things would only happen on this planet. That life would be present only on this planet Earth. Life, we know for a fact that Earth is the only planet where life 
can exist, and that is scientifically proven. Despite all the exploratory voyages to Mars and other sites in space, no other life forms have ever been found outside the Earth. Of course, forget about Hollywood and these green little creatures walking somewhere and coming from outer space. The Bible is clear that life only exists on planet Earth. And not only that, we know that not only the sun, the lights of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the, and the earth itself are used to determine the times according to what the Bible says, according to the celestial bodies. We also know that not only they determine the day, the month, the years, but also a week. The determination of the length of one week comes directly from the Bible as well. Why is it that one week doesn't have 14 days? How come a week doesn't have three days or 20 but a week has seven literal 24-hour days. Why? Well, Genesis chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. God completed the work of creation in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. One week has seven days. And ever since, I haven't seen anybody saying that the week has six or eight days. But that has been explicitly stated from the Bible from the beginning. Is the Bible scientifically accurate? Is the Bible scientifically correct? Oh, yes, it is. Let me give you one other example. About the fundamentals of science. You probably have heard of this man, Herbert Spencer. He was a famous biologist and evolutionist follower of Charles Darwin and the principles of the theory of evolution. John MacArthur points out that in 1882, this man made a statement that is a claim even to this day as fundamental to understanding science. Herbert Spencer, he said that he believed this, that everything that can be known and observed by science fits into one of five categories. And nothing can be said to exist outside of them. They are time, force, action, space, and matter. As I said, he is renowned and he is acclaimed for being one who, after years of research, he was able to define the fundamentals of science. Nothing that can be accepted scientifically can be found outside these categories of time, force, action, space, and matter. If only Herbert Spencer and all scientists were to read the Bible. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis in chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. It was right there from the very first verse. It is undeniable that the Bible is scientifically correct. It is impossible to refute. Is the Bible scientifically accurate? Oh, yes, it is. Let me give you another example. The hydrologic cycle, or it is also called the water cycle. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, in the words of Solomon, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Solomon, in all of its wanderings and all of its thoughts and cogitations, he was wondering 
How is it that the rivers continue to flow their waters into the ocean, but the oceans do not keep on rising up, drowning all of us, creating another universal flood? How is it that the rivers continue to flow, but the rivers do not continue to rise so that all of us will perish? It is interesting that Ray Comfort, in his book, Scientific Facts of the Bible, as an example, he mentions about the Mississippi River, who dumps 518 billion gallons of water into the Gulf of Mexico. And that is just one river out of thousands on Earth. Where does all that water go? How is it that we don't need Noah and an ark again? How is it? The answer is in the hydrologic cycle, in the water cycle. Solomon says, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And that speaks of the first phase of the water cycle, which as we know and we call precipitation. Water is poured out on earth through rain or snow. Water comes from the heavens to the earth and makes the rivers to swell and they flow their waters into the oceans. And so the question begins, how come the oceans do not keep on rising? The answer is in the second phase of the water cycle. And we see the psalmist giving us the, that answer. In Psalm 135, the Bible says, God causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. What exactly is the psalmist speaking about? He is speaking of the fact that after precipitation through rain and snow, as the water comes here to earth, much of the water also evaporates. The vapors ascend back to heaven, and this, he is speaking of the second phase of the water cycle, which is evaporation. Yes, much water comes down from heaven through rain and snow, but much water also evaporates and goes back to the sky. And what is the third and final phase of the hydrologic cycle? We read that in Job in chapter 36 as he says, For God draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? What is Job talking about? After the vapors ascend from the waters on earth, after evaporation, the clouds in the sky, they become heavy with water that comes from the earth. And what happens after? The third phase of the water cycle, which is condensation. Condensation makes the clouds to be weighted, to be heavy with water once again, and the water cycle, the hydrologic cycle, begins yet all over again. Precipitation comes to earth through rain and snow and evaporation, condensation, and the cycle goes on and on and on. Eventually, science came to discover the hydrologic cycle and confirmed what the Bible said. Yet, thousands of years before scientists were able to confirm this, the Bible had already revealed that to Job and Solomon, the wisest men who ever lived, according to revelation from God himself. How is that possible? Because the Bible is a book inspired by the creator himself. And being him the creator, our God, we know that he would be accurate in everything that he would say about his creation.
through this and through this revelation from the Bible, you and I know that there is no new water on earth. God is not creating any new water. The only water that exists is the same water that is being recycled over and over again since the time of Noah's flood. Everything, all the water there is on earth, continues to be recycled and it will be until the end through the hydrologic cycle. Is the Bible scientifically accurate? Oh, yes, it is. One other example is the fact that the earth is a globe. And you may say, well, that is obvious. That is obvious. Well, the earth is a globe. But did you know that there is a group called the Flat Earth Society with about 500 members who still believe today that the earth is flat? One of its most famous followers is Kyrie Irving, a famous NBA player who even used to play here for the Boston Celtics. He and the 500 members of the Flat Earth Society, they, they believe that the earth is like this. That the earth is round, but it is flat like a pizza. They say that the North Pole is on the center and that Antarctica is on the outer edge. However, we know through video taken through the NASA probe proving that the earth is not flat, but proving that the earth is a rotating globe like this. It is undeniable, but before NASA was launching rockets into space, 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah, through revelation from God, he already said that the earth is a globe. The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 40, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And you see that word circle in the original Hebrew is a word that means a sphere. It means a globe, not something that is flat. Is the Bible scientifically correct? Yes, it is. Let me give you one final example about the force of gravity. Is the Bible scientifically correct about it? Yes, it is. You probably know this man. You have heard of him, Sir Isaac Newton. He was an English mathematician, a physicist, a scientist, and a theologian, a believer in God. In 1667, he said to have formulated the theory of the law of gravity, presumably when an apple fell on his head. But in reality, we know that he simply saw an apple fall into the ground. And as he saw the apple fall into the ground, he formulated the theory of the law of gravity that has been proven through scientific means. That all the objects, according to their weights, they are pulled, they are attracted to the center of the earth because of the law of gravity, because of the earth's gravitational pull, gravitational force. And not only that, as science continued to advance, scientists were also able to determine that the earth itself stands afloat in space because of the gravitational force that comes from the sun. The sun also has its own gravitational force pulling the earth. And you may ask, how is it then that different than objects that are thrown on the ground on earth and fall to the ground because of gravitational pull, if the sun exercises gravitational pull towards the earth, how is it that the earth is not coming closer and closer and closer to the sun? Because the earth spins on its axis and that counterbalances the gravitational pull from the sun. And God allows for life to happen here on planet earth exactly because of the harmony and balance 
the Earth continues to remain at the very correct distance from the Sun to allow for life and heat and for existence to be continue to be sustained on this planet. All of this according to the law of gravity, the force of gravity. These are all scientific facts. But what did the Bible say about this? Over 3,000 years before Isaac Newton and scientists were able to confirm the law of gravity, Job said this in Job 26. God spreads out the northern skies over empty space, and God suspends the earth over nothing. Job said this in a time when most people believed that the earth was supported on the back of a giant animal. Yet, God had already revealed as a creator accurate information about his creation that the earth is suspended afloat in space by the power of gravity. These are simply a handful of examples that prove that the Bible is scientifically accurate. They reinforce our statement that science confirms that the Bible is true. Because only the Creator could have revealed these things thousands of years before science came along to confirm them. The only disagreement comes from those who do not want to believe in God and the Bible, but they only want to believe in science. Men stubbornly reject the idea that they too need faith to believe in science and in all of its hypotheses. Observational science only accepts what can be observed and verified. But historical science goes beyond what cannot be observed and verified, and they have to make assumptions on things that they cannot prove either. As I said, such as evolution and the Big Bang Theory, as we are going to see. In the end, God is proven right by what he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. You must choose which one you want to believe. You must choose to either have faith in God in the Bible or have faith in the scientists and science in explaining the things of the world that they say cannot be observed and verified in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Should I accept what God says in the Bible or should I accept the suppositions and the assumptions and hypotheses from scientists? The Bible makes it clear which choice I should make and which choice is truly wise. We much rather believe in God, in the power of his creation, in the power of his word that has created the entire universe. The question is this, how was the universe formed and where did we come from? Science confirms the Bible entirely, except that the disagreement comes about the creation of the universe and about the creation of man, about these two questions. Because the creation of the universe cannot be observed and verified. When God created the universe, there was no one there. 
to say today, yes, I was there and I saw when God created everything and I, can and I observed it and I can testify to it, I can verify it. There is no one who can say that. And also there is no one to say that God was the one who created Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve are no longer around and they are the ones who are able to, obse to observe it and verify that. And so if there is any disagreement, it's about these two questions, the creation of the universe and the creation of man. How was the universe formed and where did we come from? If we were to tackle that question number one, how was the universe formed? There are only two options that you can take, depending on your place of faith. Faith in God or faith in what the scientists say? If you believe in the biblical account of creation, you believe that in the beginning God created if you believe in the scientist account and narrative of how the universe was created, you must believe in the Big Bang Theory. It is undeniable that we do need faith to believe that God was the creator of the universe. And the Bible doesn't deny that. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. It is clear, the Bible says that we need faith to accept that God created everything through the power of his word so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. But God makes no qualms about affirming that and making that statement. With no uncertain terms, God says that he is the creator of the universe. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah in chapter 10, it is God, it is God who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. You can either believe in the biblical account of creation, or you must believe in the scientific account of a big explosion creating everything. These are the only two options. You probably have heard of this man, Henry Morris. He was a famous Christian apologist. And he is considered the father of modern creation science, that we have a young earth, that the earth is about 6,000 years old and not billions of years old. And he was one of the founders of the Institute for Creation Research. And once Henry Morris said this, the issue is not between science and the scripture. The issue is whether a man wants to submit to the word of God or does not. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and so having dumped God, they had to come up with some explanation. Having rejected his revelation, they came up with the only other option. If God didn't make it, then it just happened. How is that possible? Can we really rely on the theory of the Big Bang, of the big explosion creating everything? Well, Dr. Terry Mortensen from Answers in Genesis, he gives us an illustration for us to be able to better understand the Big Bang Theory. According to proponents of the Big Bang Theory, originally they said that 13.8 billion years ago, there was a cosmic egg that is some matter with energy and space. And that cosmic egg began to expand with a big bang, with a big explosion. And things started to happen. 
However, today, scientists, they no longer speak of the cosmic egg. They have revised their narrative because people begin to ask, where did the cosmic egg come from? And so they erase their notion completely. And modern science today doesn't speak about the cosmic egg. Modern science today says that everything came from nothing. 13.8 billion years ago, there was this big old nothing. And then nothing began to expand into something. This nothing became something. And when nothing became something 13.8 billion years ago, some 5 billion years passed after that, and so some gas clouds began to form with helium and hydrogen, which ignited some serious nuclear reactions that created the first stars. And after the first stars were formed about 5 billion years ago, the stars began to explode again, and all the stars exploded, 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 and so the, so the entire solar system came to be. That was some mighty explosion. How is it that anyone can believe that order comes from an explosion instead of chaos? What if I told you that there was a bomb inside Home Depot, and after the bomb exploded, Everything inside Home Depot went up in the air. And then, and then when everything came down, a house was built in the parking lot. <laughs> Would you believe that? And that is just a small-scale example. But we are told to believe, and our children continue to be taught this in schools, that out of a gigantic explosion, the entire order of the universe came to be. The sun, the moon, the stars, all the galaxies, just out of randomness, just out of an explosion, everything came to water. I rather believe in God and in the biblical account of creation that says this, that in six literal 24-hour days, God created the entire world, and created mankind. How did he do it? The Bible tells us in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke, and it was done. He commended, and it stood fast. In Genesis 1 alone, Ten times the Bible says, we read in Genesis 1, God said, God said, God said. Everything that is was formed according to the powerful word of our God. The creative power that was originated through the word of God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expense is declaring the work of his hands. By creation alone, it is impossible to deny the existence of God. 
By creation alone, it is impossible to deny the power of this almighty, all-present, all-knowing being creating all things. For me not to believe this, for me to be able to reject this, it must be because I do not want God in my life. And I know that if I must accept God, I would have to become accountable to Him. And I'll have to become accountable to Him for my sins, for my failures, for my mistakes, for my errors. So it is better for me to sweep this under the rug and say that simply God does not exist. And so the Bible tells us in Romans 1, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. So they have no excuse for what? For not believing that God is the creator. For not accepting the reality that God is the creator king. And you may say, but wait a minute, preacher. Didn't you read in Hebrews 11:3 that we can only accept God as the creator by faith? Yes, we can only accept God as the creator by faith because as we said, there were no eyewitnesses there. Was there anyone there who would be possibly here in this service who can say, yes, I saw God creating all things. Nobody could say that. And so we must accept that by faith. But it is... One thing that we must realize that is simply impossible for us to deny, that only an almighty, all-powerful being could have created the universe as it is. We cannot deny it. It is evident to them. Just the principle of general revelation that mankind has through creation itself. And that is why in the next verses, Paul says in Romans 1, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They knew God. How did they know God? By the general revelation of creation. It is impossible to deny that only an almighty being could have created the universe as it is. Sir Isaac Newton said, atheism is so senseless. When I look at the solar system, I see the earth at the right distance from the sun to receive the proper amounts of heat and light. This did not happen by chance. This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. How can anyone rationally deny the existence of God? One thing that we must understand, you must choose one or the other. About the creation of the universe, you either believe in God as the creator, or the only other option that science allows you to have is the Big Bang Theory. But I want you to know that the two cannot be reconciled. In first place, the Bible tells us that the earth was created before the stars. And the Bible tells us that the trees were created before the sun. That's the exact opposite of what the Big Bang theorists say that it happened. Not only the Big Bang theory goes against the biblical description of the beginning, 
The Big Bang Theory also goes against the biblical description of the end. They say that after the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, the Earth universe will continue to expand. But the universe will continue to expand until it runs out of usable energy. And that will cause what they call heat death. There will be no more sources of heat on earth. They say that everything will come to an end. Everything will come to a death by extreme cold. The universe will become uninhabitable. And so they say that all will come to a, fit, to a point of finish by ice. It will be death by ice bringing everything to an end. The Bible says something different. The Bible says that after the six days of creation, the thousands of years up to this date, it has been about 6,000 years, not billions, that the earth has been created. The Bible doesn't say that the earth will come to an end through ice. But the Bible tells us in 2 Peter in chapter 3 that the earth will come to an end through fire. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, but by his word and the present heavens and the earth are being, are being reserved for fire, not ice, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But in the same way that science doesn't offer men any hope of what may happen afterwards, the Bible tells us that those who believe in him after this present earth will come to an end through fire, we know the promise of God in Revelation chapter 21 that says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Those who believe with him will abide with him forever in a new place, in a new heaven, on a new earth that the Lord will create. I rather stand on that. How was the universe formed was our first question. You must choose. You cannot have both ways. You either believe in the biblical account of creation or you believe in the scientific account of creation through a big bang. But our second question is the creation of men. Where did we come from? And you also are confronted with two options. You either believe that God created man according to his image or you must believe, as Harold Hill says in his book, that you came from the goo by the way of the zoo and they became you. Those are the only two options. Which one you rather believe? Which one you say to adhere? Which one you want to adhere as your belief in your life? Scientists say that life came from non-living matter. From something, from dirt, from a rock, from mud, from goo, I don't know. But somehow, somehow they stand by the statement that life came from a non-living matter. Something with no cells, something with, without the ability to reproduce itself. In the same way that nothing became something, non-life matter became life. And this notion stood for centuries until 1953. And what happened in 1953? These two men happened. Two atheists. American biologist James Watson 
and English physicist Francis Crick. In 1953, they made one of the most revolutionary discoveries in science. They discovered the structure of DNA, the molecule of life. You probably have seen the double helix, the DNA strand, as a source of life. And when you see a DNA strand, usually denoted graphically as this, you see those four letters, G-C-A-T. Technically, they are called nucleotides. And one thing that we must understand is that as science has progressed today, we now know that DNA, with those letters, DNA is packed with information. Information that allows everything to be formed in your body. Information that allows everything in your body to function and properly inform everything that functions inside you. Your heart, your brain, all your organs and how they function. They receive information according to the arrangements of those four letters. In the same way that our alphabet has 26 letters, and we arrange the 26 letters of the alphabet as we want to create words. And according to our words, we have an intelligent language to be able to communicate. DNA does that. It arranges those letters so that intelligent information is passed for the creation of every part of your body. Your body has trillions of cells, and every cell inside your body has three feet of DNA, all containing information, allowing you to exist, allowing you to live. Once that was discovered, scientists were faced with a, with a big conundrum. Because if life came from non-life, then where did the intelligence for the DNA information where did that intelligence come from? From a rock? How is it that the DNA information that creates intelligent language so that your body can be created and function, where did that come from? From the goo? From the mud? From an amoeba? As one preacher once said, you have a better chance of creating an, intelli an intelligent language if you put a monkey in front of a laptop and let him type the letters, and in the end, you expect him to create the work of Shakespeare. Can you truly believe that it was random? Who gave the intelligence for DNA to be able to sustain the life and create human beings? It is impossible to deny that we all exist under the shadow of the wisdom of God given in DNA. That is so impossible to deny that to my surprise in researching this, I have come to find out that today there is a growing number of evolutionists and even atheists that accept that there was intelligent design. Can you believe it? It is too this is irrefutable. There was intelligent design. It could not have come from a rock. There was intelligent design. But when they are asked 
Where did the intelligent design come from? They say it must have come from an alien source. They don't go as far as accepting that only God could be the intelligent designer. But it is so plain and simple that even they cannot deny the intelligent design anymore. And in denying so, the only other option is this. They have to accept that men came from something that became an ape. And from those apes, after a lengthy process of time that took six million years, the ape became you. For real? Is that the best that they can offer? It is interesting that you might not have heard of this man, Sir Arthur Keith. But his claim to fame is that he wrote the foreword to a famous book. He wrote the foreword to the book, The Origin of Species, by Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. He endorsed evolution. He endorsed the studies of Charles Darwin. He endorsed the sayings that we all came from apes, that we all came from our ape-like ancestors. But what is interesting is what he said afterwards. Sir Arthur Keith, the author of the foreword to the origin of the, the species book from Charles Darwin, he said this, evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the only alternative is special creation. And that is unthinkable. How do you get to that? How can you be so re recalcitrant in your own rationale, in your own intelligence, to simply want to deny so deliberately special creation by the intelligent, all-powerful creator? Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous French military leader, he said, men will believe anything as long as it's not in the Bible. And I'm afraid that billions of people prove Napoleon right. People who just purposefully, they simply cannot accept the idea of God in their lives. The idea of God as a creator. The idea of God as a supreme being. Evolutionists then, they only have three ways to be able to confirm in their minds that we all came from apes. Before we pray today, I want to show you a video, a five-minute video with Dr. David Manton. He is a Christian biologist, and he will give us the only three possible ways that evolutionists can continue to believe that we all came from ape-like ancestors. Take a look. Did humans really evolve from ape-like creatures? We hear a great deal about ape men. In fact, I would say all of the organisms we hear about that are supposedly uh, evolved over millions of years, nothing draws the attention uh, of man more than ape men. We are, for example, less interested in the evolution of clams than we are of humans. So that really catches the attention of a lot of people, particularly a lot of young people in our schools. And I think it's quite clear from scripture that God didn't make any ape men. 
You know, Jesus Christ was once asked about divorce, and in the con uh, context of answering that question, he said, have you not read, or we might translate, don't you folks read your Bibles? He that made them made them in the beginning, male and female. And it's for this reason that a man would leave his family and cleave to a wife, and the two become one flesh. The whole basis of marriage is based on God's creative work, creating man, both male and female, in the very beginning. It's evolutionists then that create, if you will, in their minds, the ape men. And uh, how do they do this? I submit there's really only three ways to make an ape man. One would be when they find apes in the fossil record, and indeed they are there, they could take some of these apes and sort of upscale them, pick a feature about them that uh, they think might be more human-like than other apes. Uh, Lucy is an example of that kind of effort. In fact, if you just look behind me right now, you'll see that 40% of the skeleton of a creature called Australopithecus afarensis, commonly known as Lucy. Here is a creature, clearly ape, that has been upscaled in the minds of evolutionists to be human-like. It's a small, chimp-like creature, somewhere between three and four feet tall. It has an ape-like hip, which means it couldn't have walked the way humans did. Uh, its arms fit into its shoulder sockets. It had long curved fingers and toes that are far more consistent with that of an ape than a human. So Lucy does not represent an ancestor of man, and many evolutionists now concede that, yet it continues to be the most influential of the ape men. Another approach is the other way around. You can find humans in the fossil record, and yes, indeed, there are human skeletons in the fossil record, uh, Neanderthal man being a good example. And uh, Neanderthal man has been scaled down. When we think of the word Neanderthal, we think of primitive. It's, he's anything but. They were big individuals, I believe, human beings who lived during that rough period of time right after the flood, a brief ice age of a few hundred years. And they clearly led a rough life. Lots of broken bones, but interesting, interestingly, those broken bones have been set. So uh, they, they knew how to set bones when they were broken. I don't think you've ever seen an ape do anything quite like that. Uh, another thing that uh, Neanderthal man has been associated with is uh, formalized burials. Uh, jewelry have been, uh, has been found with uh, Neanderthal man. Tools, even what appear to be musical instruments, wooden flutes with holes in the appropriate position. The skeleton of the uh, Neanderthal man is human in every respect. There are certain differences, just as we'd see differences in uh, the skeletons of es Eskimos and uh, uh, other groups of people living today, Pygmies, uh, Maasai warriors, uh, Australian Aboriginals. There are distinctive features, but all well within the range of modern human uh, variability. Uh, there is a third way that uh, we can produce an ape man, and that is to uh, take a Piltdown Man, where a skull of a uh, human, uh, skull bones of a human, were combined with the mandible or the jaw of an ape, uh, specifically a female orangutan. And this crude attempt, which turned out to be a hoax, fooled most evolutionists for about 70 years. It shows you how bias enters into this whole issue. My bias, and yes, I have one too, is God's Word. I'd rather see us look to God's Word 
where God has clearly said that he has created us in his image. We have the ability to communicate with him through prayer and he has the ability to communicate with us. And no other creature has that unique ability. It cleanly separates us from all other creatures, including apes. God said he created us to worship him and he to be our heavenly father and we to be the sheep of his pasture. I hope that's the conviction of all of you. Thank you. Amen. I could not have said it best. The Bible says in Genesis in chapter 2 that God created man. This verse alone combats the absurdity of evolution and atheism. God is an all-powerful, almighty, omnipresent who created us all. One day, we are all, all humankind, we will stand before God. I will, and you will too. We were all created by God and for God. But on that moment when we all stand before him, we will either remain with him for eternity, spending time with him, or after that moment when someone appears before God, after that, they will forever be separated from him. I hope and pray that somehow the Holy Spirit of God may have ministered to your heart in understanding the fact that God in his mercy, he has allowed us to have communion with him, to have fellowship with him, despite our sins, despite our faults. He sent his one and only son to die for us, for our faults, for our sins at Calvary's cross, so that when we confess our sins and repent of our sins, we receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is my prayer that you don't waste another minute of your life before you repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, Creator, and Savior. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word, your word that has created the entire universe, your word that has been spoken on that day when we understood the message of the gospel and we received salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who has heard these words, that your Holy Spirit would continue to minister to their hearts, and that they will come to their knees and come to their senses, and realizing that you and you alone are the Savior, that you and you alone are the one who can change us forever so that we can be with you for eternity. May your blessings be with each and every one of us who are here and with everyone who is listening to this message as we speak. May your blessings be with us as we pray in Jesus' name.